you have a Bible, open to the book of Malachi chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. Um, we're walking through the book of Malachi here at the end of summer, beginning of fall, maybe. One day fall's going to come. That's my hope, right? Anyone else just hoping for fall when you walk outside and it's 105 degrees? And you think, why? 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 Right, but fall is coming, right? It's going to be right around the corner. And then uh, some of you in like three months are going to be whining that it's too cold. And I want future you to remember present you, okay? I want you just to go back in time to present you and be like, you know what? Thank you, God, for the 40 degrees and drizzle, okay? Just thank you for 40 degrees and drizzle. I needed that after 105 for a week straight. Um, I walked through the book of Malachi. Malachi uh, is, is the last book in the Old Testament, just to give you a place to look there. And it's possibly um, the last book that was written in the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament is not, written, not uh, arranged chronologically necessarily, but this is probably um, the last book that was written. And so there's a gap of like, you know, 400 years or so between Malachi and, um, you know, Paul's letters and the Gospels and things in the New Testament that you're going to get. Um, but Malachi is kind of that final voice. Israel has gone uh, into captivity. Judah, technically, I guess, has gone into captivity in Babylon. They've returned back home, and they're trying to figure out how to live um, again as a free people um, back in their homeland. And God has some strong um, words of judgment against their priests, their religious leaders, who have not been directing them well. And now he's going to have some strong words for the rest of the people, right, who, who have been taught by these priests poorly. You know, it's true, right, that as the, the, the leadership goes, uh, everything else goes after, right? And so when your priest, your preacher, is this something you should watch, by the way, as you um, look at churches around the world today? You know, as the leadership of the church goes, the church tends to follow. And so that's why big decisions that are made um, by national organizations, you know, when the Southern Baptists get together, and it's tough for them to make a decision for local churches, but, but when the Methodists get together as a, as a big council to make decisions, you know, as the leadership goes, you know, it takes about a generation, but everything will follow from there. And so good leadership, godly leadership inside of the church is, is vital. That's why you should um, spend a ton of time preparing um, and searching for the right person to fill the position that I'm in now. I know that y'all did because you found yourselves a winner, right? Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Humility, right, is just, I think that's why, why y'all call me, is just because of my natural innate humility that I have. Now, um, but, I, but, I, but I respected that about this church. Y'all, y'all were um, uh, very deliberate in, in what, what it was you were seeking, how y'all went about the process. Um, I, I know it was a long and arduous process. And even now, five years later, some of you still have some, like, PTSD from the process. So for those of you who walked through that with me, thank you guys um, for that. But but the goal of the pastor, the goal of the leader in the church is that they would direct the church in the way that God would have them to go, to tell the truth about what God has to say. And this passage here today is, is one of those passages that is just a tough passage. Um, it's Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16 is where we're going to be. Um, but, uh, but this passage, you know, there's, I preach um, expository preaching, which basically means I read God's word, I tell you what it says, and then I sit down. Right? Uh, I don't have to be super clever. I don't have to be super smart. I just have to read what God's word says, tell you what God's word said, maybe help you apply, you know, put some of those strings together to where you can make it work in your life today and sit down. Um, I don't have to think of the newest, best way to do things because I trust that God said what he wanted to say. And if God had wanted to say something different, he would have said something different. He doesn't need me to say something different for him. And then I preach book by book. This is really easy for y'all because if you come to church one week, 
you know that I'll probably be in that same book next week with very rare exceptions. You know, Easter, I'll jump out of a sermon series to let people know Christ the Lord is risen today, but I'll do that. Uh, Christmas, typically I'll, I'll take a little step over so people can, can, can get a sense for, for, for the arrival of Christ, preparing themselves for that. But otherwise, we're, we're just going to ride with what God says. But that puts me in weird places. Because I have to stand up and I have to preach passage. That's really not a friendly passage. In fact, it's one of the more difficult passages in the, in the Old Testament because it speaks about an issue that today is uh, rampant. There's not a person in this room today who is not personally affected, whether it was yourself or your loved ones, um, personally affected by this issue um, that, that God takes issue with. And that issue that's going to be spoken about a lot in this passage, it's not the, necessarily the primary focus, but it's there, is divorce. Right, uh, I'm, a, I'm a product of divorce. Uh, uh, I say that. That's, that's not tr- truly fair, right? Uh, I lived in an intact family. Uh, my mom and my dad are still married, um, but both of them were previously married, had other kids, and were divorced. And so I experienced kind of the, uh, you know, that's, that's his kid, that's her kid. Sometimes we're all together, right? And it was just kind of a, it's just my life. Uh, and a lot of you walk that path. Some of you in this room right now had been previously married. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, um, that, that marriage didn't succeed, didn't, didn't work, and, and uh, you don't need to come to church today and have the pastor heat guilt on you, right? Like, you're like, hey, I know that I've, <laughs> I know that things didn't work out the way they need to work. Um, today, we're going to talk a lot about what God's ideals are for his covenantal people, though. What is the ideals that God has for covenantal people? And it doesn't change based on societal preferences, right? It, it doesn't mean that you, you can't... Um, uh, there's no redemption there, but it doesn't change based on, based on what society says today. If it did, then God's word would not be trustworthy, and we would have to find other ways to guard and guide ourselves through this mess called life. Now, we're going to start today in verse 10. We'll read a couple verses, and then we'll jump, jump around. It says, Have we not, verse 10, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So he begins in verse 10, and he says, look, um, you know, we have all one father, that's God the Father, we all share this one father, God has created all of us. We have this common inheritance, common fatherhood. And then he says, why are we profaning the covenant of our fathers? Right? Why are we profaning the covenant of our family's heritage who have been faithful to God? The idea of a covenant um, is a promise, right? It's, not, it's like a contract with God, right? It, it's a contract that is unbreakable with God. And when you enter into a covenant, um, there's nothing you can do um, to exit the covenant. It just exists. You can be in violation of the covenant. You can live outside of the requirements of the covenant, but the covenant still exists whether you want it to or not. If you read through the Old Testament, there are several covenants that God and man enter into. Um, there's a covenant between um, God and Noah, right? God puts a rainbow in the sky and tells Noah, look, never again will I flood the whole world uh, and kill the whole world by, by, by flooding waters, right? Never again Will I do that? That is an unconditional covenant. Noah doesn't have to do anything. We, as descendants of Noah, have to do nothing, and God will uphold that. It is an unconditional covenant. But if we go further on, 
Uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham that's unconditional, and then God makes a covenant inside of the law with Moses that is a conditional-based covenant. He says, I will bless you as you follow faithfully these commands. And, and if you read the book of Deuteronomy, man, there are lots of commands. But if you'll follow faithfully these commands, I will bless you and I will give you um, all of these wonderful good things that I've just listed off here. But if you don't follow these things, if you do your own way, uh, then you will be cursed and you'll receive these bad things. And the bad things are bad and the good things are good, like you would expect them to be, right? If bad is bad and good is good. But, but he lays all of that out. And he says, this is a conditional covenant. If you're faithful, you'll be blessed. If you're faithless, you'll be cursed. Uh, and it's pretty straightforward. But there's nothing you can do to escape the covenant once you enter into it. As believers, New Testament believers today, we have a choice on whether or not to enter into living in the covenantal life with God. Right? Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, conquering death, conquering the grave, conquering sin, giving us life eternal and life here today and we get to enter into a relationship with him by faith but you are not required to do that right I, no one will put a gun to your head right and make you do that and if someone does put a gun to your head and make you do that we call that person a terrorist okay right right that's what we would call that person who forces you to convert at at, at the risk of your life right that's probably not a genuine conversion but if you voluntarily of your own volition when considering what God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross, are moved to accept Jesus Christ, there is, there is something that takes place in that process where you confess that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Lord is the most basic Christian confession. There's not anything simpler than that. Jesus is Lord. But Lord is a word we do not use outside of church. Right? We just don't use it outside of church. Uh, my, my kids do not call me Lord, right? Though I do function in sort of a lordship capacity inside of my house where, like, they have to obey what I say because I'm ultimately in charge of them, right? But, but we don't use that term. They call me dad, right? Which is, uh, I guess, I don't know, better in some ways for me, right? Um, but when we say Jesus is Lord, what you're saying in that moment when you're confessing um, to, 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 to God and to the world that Jesus is Lord, you're saying, I am putting myself underneath that person's leadership. Wherever he says to go, I'm going to go. Where he says to avoid, I'm going to avoid. I'm going to follow him. And in that moment, you're entering into a covenant with God. And it's not altogether dissimilar from the covenant in the book of Deuteronomy, whereas we follow the lordship of Jesus Christ, we'll be blessed, not necessarily with material things, but blessed with a faithful, fruit-filled relationship with God and with the world around us, right? We're going to have, um, we're going to have joy and peace and some of the things listed in the fruit of the Spirit uh, in great abundance as we fall faithfully. But when we go away from that, and most everybody in this room has a period in our life from the day that you confess Jesus as Lord to the day that we sit here today, where maybe we've wandered from God for a season. Maybe it was a bad week, maybe it was a bad month, maybe it was a bad decade, okay? Right, but, but we've wandered for a season. And in those seasons, we, we end up looking up, and we're like, man, I'm getting pounded right now with all these things around me. What happened? And the issue is you have walked away from the covenant of responsibilities you have, and you're experiencing what the world has out there. The book of Romans lays that out in a wonderful, uh, descriptive way. Um, you know, it says, God gave them over to the simple desires of their heart. Right, And that's kind of what God does for us. Uh, when we walk with him, 
right? We're living under his protection. We're living underneath his, his providential care. But eventually, we, we say, well, I want to do it my way. And we start running ahead of God or away from God. And when we leave God, we leave his protection. And God may try to pull us back and pull us back and pull us back. But eventually, God says, if that's what you want, you can have it. Some of you, when we're about to deal with marriage here in a second, but some of you got married to the, the wrong person, someone who God never would have intended you to marry. Right? He never would have intended. If you had sought godly counsel, if you had gone um, to the Lord in prayer, if you had been faithful about it, you never would have married that person. Never. It would, it would never have crossed your mind. Right? You would have been like, that is the last person that God would have asked or wanted me to marry. They don't love him. They don't know him. They don't encourage me to follow him. They're opposed to him. But for some reason, in that season of your life, you ran ahead of God, outside of God, and God gave you over to the sinful desires of your heart. And some of you have been living the consequences of that for the rest of your life. Right? That's just the consequences of sin out there. But we're covenant people. We're supposed to remain in a good covenant with God. And the first thing that God really wants to drive home with the Jews of that day, and something that I want us to drive home today as we deal with marriage, is, is there are requirements for who it is that we should be willing to marry. I have six children. Just counting them up real quick. I have six children. I have uh, two now of dating age. I, that's right. I have two now of dating age because my, my oldest daughter turned 16 this week, this past week, six days ago, seven days ago, August the 6th. I don't know what day we are right now. Maybe two weeks ago now. Um, but she turned 16. 16 is our official you can date if you find anybody worth dating age, okay? And, and like, honestly, there's a lot of people not worth dating, okay? I got two kids of dating age, and here's, here's my big encouragement to them. Like, not every person who makes your heart go pitter-patter, right? Not every person who, who makes you feel special is someone who you should even consider dating because they don't love God. And that's like your basic thing. Like, like we want people who, are, who love God, who know God through Jesus Christ. Because if we violate that basic thing, you're going to experience pain and heartache the rest of your life. And, when, and I encourage my 17-year-old specifically, I say, look, when you choose someone to date, right, date someone who has similar religious backing as you. Because if you don't, you're inviting trouble. You're just asking for problems down the way. And ultimately, you're going to not going to want to marry that person, but you're going to have an emotional connection that says, I want to marry that person. And those two things are going to be at war with each other. One of them is going to win. So it's better now not to get involved in a relationship with someone who doesn't meet your minimum standards for marriage. Um, I was at youth camp years ago, and a guy said, what do you call middle schoolers dating? Uh, this is a, a little, and, and he said, it's divorce practice, right? Because middle schoolers, they just date, 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 date. <laughs> right? It's just divorce practice. No commitment, no nothing. We didn't want our kids to do that. So we said, well, look, have a basic standard. If they meet the basic standards, sure, go on a date with them. See if you like them. See if you can get along with them. See if it's someone that you could have a forever relationship with. And when you find out that they're not, don't lead them on. Don't lead yourself on. Pull the ripcord. Get out of the relationship because God has something better. The people of Israel weren't doing that, though. They were dating people of other faiths. Uh, so they were dating um, people from Moab or people from uh, Ammon or people from um, Babylon or, uh, or the Assyrians. They were marrying anybody um, because their hearts went pitter-patter and your heart guys is the least trustworthy organ in your body don't listen to it people say follow your heart 
And the Bible says your heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. Don't follow your heart. Right? Your heart will lead you astray. Follow God's word. God gives a basic understanding for covenant people. If you're going to be in a covenant relationship with God, the people you bind yourself to with a covenant-like marriage need to share that basic understanding. Right? I'm not saying you can't marry a Presbyterian. You can, okay? God bless you, right, if you figure that out, right? Um, by the way, if you marry a Presbyterian, you're going to hear a lot about covenants because that's a big deal in, in Presbyterian theology, right? Uh, but, but you can marry, but they have to share a basic understanding who Jesus is, who God is, who we are outside of relationship with God, and what Jesus did to make a way for us to be one with the Father. If they don't share that, don't marry them. If you're raising kids today, you need to tell them this. There is a lot of people out there who look good, smell good, uh, and, and dance good, right? Not all of those people who meet your basic requirements meet the foundational requirement that they share a love for Jesus Christ. Do not bind yourself to those people because if you do, God wants nothing to do with you. When you bind yourself to those people, Right, I mean, in verse 12, right, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this and bring an offering, and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. God wants to cut those people off because they're violating his covenant. You're in a covenantal relationship with, with, with God. You bring someone else into a covenantal relationship with you. They need to be in the covenant with God. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense because that's where we're at right here. And then we get to this very complicated section in verse 13. By the way, this area, I, I'm not a Hebrew expert. I took two semesters of Hebrew in seminary. I don't think I could give you the alphabet today, okay? All right, so Hebrew is not like Greek. I can sort of, sort of play around with a little bit, get in a little trouble with Greek. Hebrew, I can't even get in trouble uh, in Hebrew, okay? I look at it just like you, and I'm like, yeah, lots of pretty, pretty little symbols, okay? Um, but the experts, the guys who actually do read Hebrew and translate scripture and give us Bibles and commentaries and all the things that help us understand and, and apply God's word, they, they look at this section right here and they're like, I don't know. Uh, it's a very uh, unclear section in Hebrew um, if you're looking for individual specific like phrases, but the general idea is clear. Um, and I want to read it and then we're going to deal with it. It says, in this second thing that you do, so the first thing is you marry women from foreign gods, because covenant of people are supposed to be faithful to God, and faithful to God alone, so not supposed to bring other people in. So the first thing you do is you're, you're being unfaithful to God by violating the covenant. The second thing you do, though, in verse 13 says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he doesn't have regard for the offering or accept it with favor from your hand. But then you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says, The Lord, um, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. By the way, if you're reading this in a Bible in front of you, you're like, there, they, they took a real weird turn there from what Matt was reading to what I was seeing. You know, there's, there's a, I think the NIV, probably the King James, almost certainly the King James, um, translate that in section there where it says, God hates divorce. Y'all heard that phrasing before, God hates divorce. 
right? It's one of those, those verses in there that's kind of hard to understand. But the general concept is clear of what's going on in verses, what, 13 through 16, uh, is that, that the second violation that covenantal people have, instead of having a, 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 a the, the first violation is, right, they, they, they stop being faithful to God by marrying women who are outside of God's covenant. Second violation, though, is that they stop being faithful to their spouses. Right? Covenants are entered into, and they should be solemnly entered into. And the idea of being faithful to your spouse from the day that you get married to the day that one of you dies uh, is, is as old as Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve are made. It is the oldest concept uh, there is, but it has been in violation for almost that long. For almost that long. And a lot of times, back in this day specifically, it would happen where men, uh, they would get married uh, at a relatively young age. They would marry um, a relatively young woman uh, when she was in, as they say, the flower of her youth, right? And just, just all the beauty and, and majesty that she could ever have as a young woman. And then as she got older, he looked around and he saw another young woman in the flower of her youth. And he said... And he kicked away one, and he brought another one in, right? Constantly seeking uh, the next young one. I just spent a couple of days with my, uh, my brother in Dallas. Um, they were doing back-to-school shopping. That's weird for homeschoolers, by the way. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, pajamas, I think. I'm not sure. Um, just kidding, right? Just kidding. They bought actual clothes, pants, and things. Um, but, but they did back-to-school shopping up in Dallas with my, my sister-in-law, and, uh, but I remember years ago, um, that was something that she consistently stated is like, like was her big concern uh, about, maybe not exactly about my brother, but just a big worry of hers because she gave up her career. She gave up what she was doing and she had kids and did all the, the, the regular kind of stay at home things. And she's like, and then in 10 years or 15 years, uh, when I've raised these kids and I'm 20 years behind on my career path uh, that I would be on, you know, he could just up and decide to go get someone 20 years younger uh, and do that. And that was a fear of hers. I, didn't, I haven't heard that in years now, so hopefully she's, she, she's come to peace with that. That's not what's going to happen. By the way, that's not what's going to happen, right? Y'all have got this thing figured out. Um, but right, there's a real fear there, and we've seen it, right? We, we know people who've experienced this in their life where they, where they go through life together, and there comes a point where one or the other decides, I'm tired of you. And so they forsake their spouse uh, their, their, their wife or their husband of their youth, right? And, that, and that's a clear violation of the covenant that you enter into. When you enter into a marriage covenant, it's a forever covenant, right? It's supposed to be you and her or him, depending on your you gender, um, right, right, forever. Uh, when I do marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling and probably marriage counseling, one of the, the things I focus on is the wedding vow. The wedding vow is, is, is really long, one really ugly sentence, right? I, Matt, take you, Danielle, to be my wedded wife, to have and hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, richer, poor, uh, good times, bad times, Asher's winning, Asher's losing, right? The whole thing, right, right, till death do us part, right? And that's kind of the whole, whole wedding vow, right? But, but you can simplify it down to I take you to be my spouse forever, no matter what. That's the whole wedding vow. There's a lot of things on the no matter what that we throw in there, like, hey, if we're sick or if we're healthy or if we're rich or if we're poor, if we're, you know, living in a shack, living in a mansion or whatever, right? We have a lot of what 
you know, no matter what. But really, when you get married, assuming you use what I consider to be a genuine wedding vow, not, we were watching a wedding on TV, fake weddings on TV, which, you know, I don't know what TV show it was. Um, and like, I'm pausing the show, and I look over at my wife, and I'm like, this is a terrible wedding vow. A terrible wedding vow sounds like this. This is not really part of the, the, the sermon, but you get it for free anyways, so it makes me mad. We stand up here. Husband's over here. No, that's not right. He's over here. He's looking at his wife. He's like, baby, you make me feel so good. You make me smarter and better. Oh, you're so amazing. So great. I love you. And that's the wedding vow. And he didn't vow anything. He didn't promise to do anything. He didn't promise to take her forever. Right? He just said, you make me feel like this. And that's not a wedding vow. That's just, that's, that's a Hallmark card. Okay? And that's great. Like, give your wife a Hallmark card. She'll probably appreciate it. By the way, guys, if you go by the store today and pick up a Hallmark card that says literally what I just said, your wife's going to love it. And she'll eat that up. Put, put a rose in there, too. You're welcome. Free for you guys out there. Okay? Free. But it's not a wedding vow. A wedding vow is a statement of commitment. I'm going to commit myself to you no matter what happens. Some of you have walked the no matter what happens, and it is hard. Right? Your, your, your spouse um, begins to slip physically and mentally, and all of a sudden the person that you're married to, is, it, they, they don't even know who you are. And you do that for years. Years you stand beside your spouse as, as, as who they were, who they were for 40, 50 years, is no longer there. And you're standing beside them and caring for them. And the reason you do that, the reason you should do that, is because one day, probably in a church back when you got married, you told, told that person, when you get sick, I'm going to stand with you no matter what happens, till one of us dies. And that is such a beautiful, faithful picture. But you know, it, it doesn't last like that for a lot of people. Constantly trading in, trading up, looking on the other side, having our eyes wandering out there. And guys, I want to tell you, bind your eyes to the wife that God has given you. Wives, bind your eyes to the husband God has given you. He may not treat you perfect. She may not do everything that you want, right? But bind your eyes to them because you promised that you would. Now, look, there are, there are reasons for divorce. I'm not going to get deep into those today, um, but I will, I will specify one thing right now. If you're living in an abusive relationship, if you are being physically abused, mentally tortured, physically, sexually assaulted, uh, I want to I I tell you, get out of there. Come see me, and I'll walk with you through that process of how, of how to move forward in your life. Right, I will walk with you. I will get you to the right people to keep you safe, to get you where you need to be. But aside from those issues, aside from those issues, bind yourself to them. Yes, they may have lost all initiative. Yes, they might have let themselves go. That's a good phrase, by the way, right? Let themselves go. Bind yourself to them. You will find more joy and happiness in that relationship than you will in any other relationship out there. Right? TLC said it best. Don't go chasing waterfalls. 
right now. Some of you are like, yes. And some of you are like, what? Stay with the person that God has given you. And if you've, and if you've walked that path already, and you're on the back side of that path, uh, and you're trying to figure out how do, I, how do I live my life today is to be faithful in the covenants that God has given you. Because God demands for his people to be faithful people. Whatever covenant we enter into, we, we handle it faithfully. If the church was known for people who were promise keepers, that movement that happened back in the late 90s, if we were truly promise keepers, when a Christian told you something, that that was going to be what happened, right? You weren't looking for an end around on how to get over on people all the time. If you were just truly faithful to your word, then God looks better. Not as good as he should look, but he looks better because people who bear his name bear it faithfully. God is a faithful God. He's been faithful to you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've been through, God has walked with you. He'll continue to walk with you. He's not done with you. You're not abandoned. You're not alone. You're not isolated. Guys, you can feel isolated. I know coronavirus stuck in your home five months at a time. You can feel isolated. You're not alone. God is with you and near you. He's been faithful to you from the day that you enter into a relationship with you. He'll be faithful to you when the day that he calls you home to be with him. Be faithful like God. God needs faithful Christians. Believers who stand and say, this is who I am. I will remain committed to this. Not shifty Christians. Not Christians who are looking for, for an advantage or an opportunity to take, take, take a mile when you give them an inch. We need faithful believers. Right? We've all seen some areas that go sideways. Right? We've all, my last church that I was at before here, uh, there was a major split in the church. And the major split was there was a dude who had a business and he was selling people on his business in the church. And the business wasn't quite what you would call real. But the money that was going to him was very real. Then he was taking their money and promising them these other things. And then when it fell apart, which inevitably it was going to fall apart, people were hurt. And they said, if that person who, I don't think he was an elder, but he was a respected person in the church. If that person who's a respected believer, a respected person in the church would do that, then God must not be faithful either. And there were people who walked away from it. I had teenagers whose parents walked away from the faith because of a relationship that it went sideways in the church. Because someone acted faithlessly in their dealings. In all things, be faithful. In all things, be faithful. God expects that of us. If you can't do it, say you can't do it. If you're not going to do it, say you're not going to do it. I try to be faithful in what I say. You know, sometimes people are like, hey, can you do da-da-da-da? And I'm like, I'll try. If I say yes, though, I'm going to do it. And unless there's some amazingly crazy thing that happens. Because I want you to know that if I tell you I'm there, or I'll show up, or I'm going to be a part of whatever this thing is, that I'm there, and I'm going to show up, and I'm going to be a part of it. My favorite story is, right, I see someone at Walmart on a Saturday, so we'll see you tomorrow, preacher, and I'm like, no, you won't. <laughs> okay. I'll see you tomorrow, preacher. My response to that, by the way, is not no, you won't, because that's too sarcastic. My response is, I'll be there. That's, I'll say it every time. I'll be there. I'll say it to you, person who's here every Sunday. I'll be there. Right? Will you? I don't know. I don't want to speak for you. I don't know why you felt compelled to lie to me that you would be there. But I'll be there tomorrow, preaching God's word.
Be faithful in your words. Say what you mean. If you don't, don't just say things to make people feel things. Don't enter into relationships like marriage lightly and don't walk away from them lightly. Because God has not walked away from you. And he's not going to. Be faithful to him. He's always faithful.